previously on Lost. We're not supposed to leave. Yes, we were. We have to go back, Kate. We have to go back! By the way, nice trucks. You think I could hop into one of them and drive it away? I'd love to just drive the hell out of here. Just get the hell out of this. I had such a good life. My life was great. And then I said, let's do this, darling. This will be a lot of fun. Daddy! Damn, son, where'd you find this? I'm gonna right. vote for Gary Johnson or some shit. Damn, why? Broadcasting live to tape from the new society show theater in the most standoffish city in the world outside of Austria. Seattle, Washington. I'm listening. You're listening to a podcast of a world gone mad. This is the Society Show. You know, we're living in a society. Today is the first ever mega episode. I'm calling it the Old Bastards episode. And uh, I'm going to get more into that, but first. But first, but first, but first, but first, but first. But first, let me run down the schedule for this first mega episode. First, I'm going to call out some people who I would like to come on the show if they'd ever want to. I am also going to call add a new person to the official Society Show denunciation list. Then, I'm actually going to be joined by my brother Cameron. We're going to talk about the Bolivian uh, election, 2020 Bolivian election. We're going to talk about the protests in Thailand. We talk about a lot of stuff, really. It goes for about 40 minutes. I'm going to take a break, talk about some dystopic elements of our society, go on a little rant about dystopia news in the dystopia corner (laughs) that's what i call the segment and then i will be joined by a man named mike phallic of the hashtag cult podcast uh his podcast focuses on men going their own way um, a men's rights style movement and similar men's rights style misogynistic manosphere type online groups So that will be very informative. And uh, then I'm just going to wrap up the show with a few news stories about Africa, a few news stories from Europe, just to kind of ramp down. And that will be that for the show. So without further ado, let's get into it. 
this is the first mega episode of the Society Show. You may notice it's called the Old Bastards episode. I appointed Johnson to the Academy. I just want you to know that. Just clap for that, you stupid bastards. The reason why it's called that, you might guess, is there are a couple old bastards running for president. Uh, Trump and we have some back in keeping the oil. We should have kept the oil in Iraq too. Biden and the Bernie Bros are here. Let him go. Today, if you're listening the day that this came out, today is election day. The ballots are in, and one girl had to win. Also, if you're listening to this on the day it came out, tonight I will be doing the very first society stream. Society. I'm going to be streaming the election, talking to a few people, you know, playing games when I'm bored. I'm going to probably be streaming all night. Uh, and if you are not listening to this the day it comes out, like most people do, then you could probably, uh, I'll probably upload uh, audio from the stream as an episode. So uh, this is the society show. We are going big places, doing big things. I don't know how to put this, but I'm kind of a big deal. But in the meantime, uh, we are not using this episode to talk about the election. Uh, I will talk about, I'm talking about it now, but, uh, we're gonna use this opportunity to talk about some other old bastards, and I use that term very loosely, some of these people aren't particularly old, but, uh, um, I'll be calling them old bastards, and they, maybe they're not even bastards, but, uh, I wanted to start the show with a little call out, I'm calling out some pundits, some personalities who uh, I, I don't exactly want to call out, but I would like to invite on the show. So, first of all, Matty Glacius, that you may know him from Twitter. He is probably the most quintessential neoliberal I can think of. Matty Glacius. You are welcome on the Society Show. We can talk about all of your takes, all of your opinions. You're welcome. Come on, open invitation. All of these people, open invitation. Number two, I have an open invitation to Vosh. Have you guys heard of this guy? He's on YouTube. Uh... And as far as I know, I could be wrong, he is an actual Washingtonian, as am I, born and raised in Washington. Uh, so let's meet up, Vosh. We don't have to do it in person, but the thing is, I don't really agree with him on a lot of stuff. I recently watched him on Tim Pool. I've been watching so much stuff that I'm just like... Why? Like, I listened to Vosh on Tim Pool. I listened to Alex Jones on uh, Joe Rogan. Uh, now, next, I'm going to listen to Kanye West on Joe Rogan. But, uh, <laughs> um, so, Vosh, the main thing I would like to talk to Vosh about is he calls himself a market socialist, a libertarian socialist. And maybe I don't go there very much on this show, but I personally 
am completely in favor of a centralized economy with a distributive model, which is the exact opposite of a libertarian market economy. So I would totally like to debate him on that. I think the issue is Vosh has debated people who are in favor of centralized uh centralized distributive economies before but it always turns into you know tanky this tanky that shut up tanky and it's just completely just the most worthless waste of time but i do want to talk about centralized versus decentralized economies the next person i'm calling out is david pacman he made a video in support of the Bolivian coup criticizing Evo Morales. He made this right after the coup happened. And after the 2010 Bolivian election, Moss, Evo's party, has been fully vindicated, but David Pacman's video is still up. Uh, so I want to ask him, why is that video still up? Do you still stand by that uh, opinion? Which... It would be absolutely baffling if anyone who identifies as left could possibly hold that opinion post-2020 Bolivian election. So David Pacman, you are welcome on the Society Show. I'm going to talk a lot more about Bolivia later on in the show. And finally, the last person I'm calling out, Blockhead Matt Taibbi. Uh, so... <sighs> All he's done in the past, like, six months is whine about cancel culture. But the, the thing that's funny about that is as soon as he started turning cancel culture into the focus of his whole journalistic career, the minute he did that is the minute that everyone stopped talking about cancel culture. Like... There's been about 18 different cancel cultures in my life. Every year, conservatives cycle in a new one. Like, oh, we're being censored in this way. We're doing this in this way. It's always it's all the same crap. And I just find it particularly funny that Matt Taibbi hitched his wagon on cancel culture as soon as the George Floyd protest started. Hmm. Who does that remind you of? Ever heard of Irving Kristol? Maybe you haven't, but he is one of the forefront neoconservatives. Uh, he's dead now, but he started as a new leftist. And the thing that made him turn into a neoconservative was actually the black liberation movement. Does does Who does that sound like? Matt Taibbi? <laughs> guy who used to be a progressive until a black liberation movement became very vocal hmm that really rings a bell um but yeah so matt taibbi you trash your whole career focus hitching your wagon on a conservative trend that was already almost over so you're welcome to on the show if you want to revitalize your career and credibility but uh those four people are all welcome. I have the most animosity to, uh, well, I the only one I don't have extreme animosity towards is Vosh. Uh, he annoys me. I think his videos are really boring. Uh, he spends like an hour being like, 
Oh, uh, here's exactly why in 10,000 words why this Ben Shapiro video is wrong. Um, that's really boring to me, but, uh, I respect it. I respect the hustle. The other three I don't respect very much. David Pacman's okay. Uh, I actually watched some videos of him practicing chess lately. <laughs> He's like a casual chess player, but, uh, and then Matt Taibbi and Matt Iglesias, they're just freaking, they're they're idiots. <laughs> That's all I got to say about that. Can you describe to me what critical race theory is? So in layman's terms, I'm not, I don't have the academic def definition up uh, pulled up for you, but specifically like uh, privilege plus power, whiteness, minorities, white uh, traits of whiteness would be specifically like hard work, scheduling. But when they put out a, a list that says whiteness, uh, they, they say things like down with whiteness, um, traits of whiteness include schedules, hard work, planning for the future, 2.5 kids, and all of those things. You're just listing the one Smithsonian Museum pamphlet that was passed out and largely criticized. Critical race by, theories... Criticized by who? It was it was in the Smithsonian for decades. By ever, That specific pamphlet, no, it was not. This pamphlet you're referring to right now, I know because I covered on my stream and made fun of it as well. I don't believe we've been introduced. Dwight Schrute, Assistant Regional Manager. Andy Bernard, Regional Director in Charge of Sales. So you'll be reporting to me then? Mm, on the contrary. <laughs> My title has manager in it. And I'm a director. Which on a film set is the highest title there is. Do you know anything about film? I know everything about film. If, um, if the working class and the Jewish and queer people of Nazi Germany had risen up sometime immediately after Hitler was appointed chancellor, I think most of us would agree that's pro like, I mean, things get messy, sure, but like right. now in hindsight, like we know. And I think that like right now in the United States of America, the idea of like political violence for a revolution is it's like a, it's like a comedy. It's not going to happen. Are you kidding me? But it's who, not. Who's to say that the Jewish violent leader wouldn't have been worse than Hitler? Well, no, <laughs> because think... that's. Hey, buddy. Anything new to report? Do you mean to me from you? Because that's how it works. So before I get to uh, my segment with Cameron, I do want to talk a little bit about someone else I'm calling out, someone else who's in the news right now. Eric Prince, ever heard of this guy? Uh, he was the founder of Blackwater. He's related to Bretzi DeVos um, in the Trump administration. Now Rolling Stones published an article written by Seth Hatina. The title is, The Blackwater Founder Wants to Bring Back His Company's Glory Days. And he's campaigning for Donald Trump's help to do it. But he's haunted by his past failures and is facing questions about a mercenary fiasco in Libya. So this story covers a lot of points that the Society Show focuses on a lot. Um, we haven't done one in a few year or in a few episodes, but one of the main segments of the show used to be the Libyan Civil War report. Uh, if you listen to early day episodes, you probably know more about the Libyan Civil War than 99.9% of Americans. But let's get into this article a little bit.
So, in 2019, Blackwater became implicated in a plot uh, to aid Khalifa Haftar. So, let me dissect that a little bit. In the Libyan Civil War, there's two factions, the GNA and the LNA. The LNA is controlled by Khalifa Haftar. The GNA is the Government and National Accord. It is the internationally recognized government. Um, but so now the report from Rolling Stone basically says there was a project, an operation named Project Opus, um, and it says that when they, when money was being funneled to Khalifa Haftar, there were also mercenaries being put in place, and so there's a lot of shadowy support to Khalifa Haftar, right? And let me spell out the sides of the Civil War. There's the GNA, like I said, the LNA. The GNA is internationally recognized, recognized by the UN, but it's primarily supported by Turkey. The other side, the LNA, is not internationally recognized, but it's primarily supported by Egypt, but it's supported by the entire um, Saudi uh, Saudi allied power block in the Middle East. So UAE heavily supports Haftar. Egypt, Russia even supports Haftar. So it's a little confusing. Um, it's a little confusing why so many countries support Haftar when ostensibly the international consensus is the GNA is the leader. But they, they say a lot of clues point in the direction of Eric Prince. And they also say Eric Prince declined repre repeated requests to comment for this story, um, including questions about whether he was involved in any way. So, I mean, I think Eric Prince is involved. So let me go back into this guy. You probably know a lot about him. He was in charge of Blackwater, which is the private military company that massacred civilians in Iraq. The country, the company then did have a bunch of name changes. Eric Prince has since, right now, this actually almost never gets press because it's kind of a clandestine organization, but he is um, a head honcho over at some Hong Kong-based company called Frontier Services Group. Yeah, Frontier Services Group, founded by uh, Eric Prince. So what this is, it says it's an Africa-focused security, aviation, and logistics company. Now, the reason I say this is very uh, clandestine is Frontier Services Group seemingly provides private military to Chinese capitalists in Africa. But it, it's very, like, that. those details aren't very clear, but that is exactly what it seems like. Um, so he never really got out of the Blackwater game. He, he is... 
he's basically always been uh, an international private security guy. And the reason I'm bringing all this up about the Libyan Civil War, about... I know I'm a little disorganized, but I'm bringing up a lot of different details about Eric Prince. And the reason I'm doing that is... Eric Prince, as Rolling Stone said, he really wants to bring back Blackwater. So let me go a little more into this article. My thoughts are a little everywhere. I'm sorry about that. But uh, so the article basically goes into once Obama was elected, the CIA clamped down on Eric Prince because he was just... Blackwater is out of control. Um, I'm losing it! Prince then, like, basically burned his bridge with the CIA by telling Vanity Fair about what he did for them. Um, and so after after the Obama administration, he didn't have the central role in, in the political economy that he used to. And then, so, they go on to describe what happened to Eric Prince since then. It said... Prince, four of his children, and the family dog moved full-time to Abu Dhabi. He, so he, it says he reported an estate of more than $50 million, and he was set about building what the New York Times described as a secret 800-man mercenary army able to put down threats to the ruler of the UAE. Uh, which is just insane. He was basically a freelance mercenary creator, and that's still what he is. He tried to do it for the prince. Um, his relationship with the, the the king of UAE or prince or whatever uh, he eventually went bad, and he bl- blames the Obama administration for it. Um, he said, quote, I think the Obama administration went out of their way to tarnish my ability to do business in the Middle East. You can read this whole article. I I, I don't want to go into any more details. I just want to, I, I feel like I have all the details out there to do what I set out to do. So here's what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. I'm calling Eric Prince out. Not in the same way I called out freaking David Pac-Man or something. I'm calling out Eric Prince because he is added to the Society Show official denunciation list. Here's a list of all the giant, bad, dumb things I've ever said. If you've listened to the show before, he's not the first person on the list. The first person is Peter Thiel, Eric Weinstein, Jeff Giese. If you don't know those guys, they're all affiliates of Peter Thiel. They're like the... Oh, and Curtis Yarvin. They're basically the ideological support for Peter Thiel. They disseminate ideology for Thiel. So, I'm adding you, Eric Prince, to that list, you stupid bastard. You're the biggest freaking bastard ever. You massacred people in Iraq. You're still doing it. You'd think that'd give you a little perspective, you shit. When a shit apple falls from a tree and grows up in a field of shit, it doesn't have any choice, just like Trinity. She's gonna grow up to be a shit apple tree, just like her father. And you are officially on the list. Oh yeah, you're laughing? You know what? You know what's gonna happen? Oh, you know what's happening to you right now? Huh? You know what's gonna happen? No, 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 no! Words? 
You just made the list! Uh, with that out of the way, I suppose it's a good time to invite my brother on the show. His name is Cameron. Uh, I asked if he wanted to be on the show, and he said yes. I asked him what he wanted to talk about, and he said he wanted to talk about Bolivia and Thailand. And I was like, yes, those are two things I want to talk about right now. So without further ado, don't forget Eric Prince is a bastard, and he's on the official Society Show denunciation list. But without further ado, please welcome my brother Cameron to the show. I am joined to talk about these two upcoming stories, uh, the protests in Thailand and the election in Bolivia. I am joined by my brother Cameron to talk about this. Cameron, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so uh, out of these two stories, which would you prefer to talk about first? Probably Bolivia. Probably Bolivia first. Okay, so um, basically the to get into it, the movement towards socialism, which is abbreviated as MAS in Spanish, uh, in, won the first election after the Bolivian coup, and they won it very impressively. Uh, the MAS candidate, Louis Arce, won the election with over 50% of the vote. And this means in their country that the vote will not have to go to a second runoff election. Like, if you get over 50%, you just win instantly. Um, And that was actually a controversy in the last election with Evo Morales. Because originally they said he got, like, 49% of the vote. But then once all the votes were counted, he had 51 or whatever. So uh, do you have any preliminary thoughts on the basics of this? Um, not really. I I mean, kind of just my thoughts of this going into it was, I mean, it was obvious that it was a coup beforehand, like Evo Morales was, it was a coup for getting him kicked out of uh, the presidential uh, position, because he should still be president technically wasn't his position up in like January or something. Yeah, exactly. So when the coup happened, it wasn't even like it was the end of his term. It was right. Yeah. Um, so that's part of it, too. And uh, another part of it was just a lot of confusion about the way they counted the votes. So they would give votes to the media early, but not all of them. So uh, the the vote the media has is actually behind and right. the last votes counted were from rural areas which tend to always support Morales because they're like poor indigenous peasants basically right so, okay. oh, so, and I did support you know I mean like I uh, you know that obviously shouldn't happen he shouldn't be just thrown out but one thing that I did feel like wasn't really being talked about a ton or at least i didn't see it is that he was trying to change the their constitution so that he could be president for longer which i naturally kind of that like is so you know is a little aversion in there for me uh for him but 
um i am glad that now that this election is done that it's someone else even though it's like you know one of his counterparts that is the new president it's like not him himself you know yeah the thing with the um extending term limit i don't uh know exactly what the courts were but like one court voted against it um uh was like no you can't run again but then another court was like well technically this or that so right. there were like two conflicting things um but yeah so the guy who won it louis arce he was president morales's minister of economy and public finance and their economic plan together is probably the most impressive part of the administration because i mean they grew the middle class a lot and they eliminated a lot of poverty stuff like that right yeah no they're i mean they it was the fastest growing economy in south america uh, i believe bolivia was under their uh their administration so it makes sense and you know i'm sure that uh, it'll still basically be the same as when evo was president but um you know just a different face <laughs> yeah and uh, i kind of want to talk about some different reactions that people have about it uh so one take is you've probably seen people with this take it's a common one that like um, there, there. Since there was a peaceful transfer of power, and Janine Anya's the interim president or whatever, uh, like let the transition happen peacefully. And so some coup defenders are using this as evidence that there was never actually a coup to begin with. Right. No, I have heard that. I. That's just ridiculous. And don't. I mean, Janine Anya's wasn't even able to. Um, wasn't technically running at the end of uh, the election, um, I believe. I, like, I think her name was on the ballot, but she wasn't technically running. Like, she had to drop out because she didn't have enough votes. Yeah, but... and she was... Because, so, the three biggest candidates were Louis Arce, and then this guy, Carlos Meza, and then another guy named Fernando Camacho. I'll talk about them in a, in a minute, but... Uh, Janine Anya, so Camacho's super far right, and Carlos Mesa's kind of a centrist, so she was just filling a conventional right winger role that was really splitting the vote even more than it already was. Right. Yeah, I saw she had like 9% or something at like her max, and <laughs> so like 9% of the vote. So, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, at that point, it really is just taking 9% of the vote from someone else. Yeah, and people forget that the only reason she was uh, made the interim president is because all of the MAS-supporting politicians were intimidated out of town, basically, and no one was there right. to vote against her. Yeah, like, I, I was listening to one thing where uh, they said that she was, like, never meant to be president like it she was never meant to be like the face of their movement or anything and uh, just kind of ended up that way yeah i'm i'm not positive but i don't think she was a particularly well-known or famous politician right yeah 
She, I don't think she was. Yeah, she was just kind of random. Yeah, so there's a different type of person who supported the coup who have has a different approach. They criticize Fernando Camacho, who is... I mean, I feel like it's right to call him an actual fascist. Like, he has ties to... There's a small but vocal Croatian Nazi population in Bolivia that migrated there after World War II. Um, And the descendants of them are actually very far right still and very vocal. He's affiliated with them. Um, But uh, to get back on track, so people are criticizing Camacho for taking votes away from Carlos Meza, but... What they don't really realize is that Carlos Mesa is not that different from Joe Biden. Like, he's pretty left-wing on social issues. He's pro-gay marriage, but he's also uh, a neoliberal economically. And Camacho is explicitly fascist, so he didn't want Carlos Mesa to win either. Right. And people saying, you know, if if they're saying that, the you know... Uh, Camacho is taking votes away from Carlos Mesa, then they're basically saying that the fascist would side with the neoliberal in that election. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the thing with this opinion is it, it's very much like, well, why didn't you do what the Democrats did against Bernie attitude? Yeah, right. Yeah, no, it's it's kind of funny to see that reflection because I mean, I mean, you can always make comparisons to, you know, like their, you know, neoliberal to Joe Biden, you know, but it's the you know still a little different like political landscape. Just seeing how it reflects on their society and what they do, yeah, yeah. it is interesting. Yeah, and that brings me to a, another uh, reaction that people are, that like hardcore Biden bros are having, where they've been saying, like, see, voting can wi- fight fascism or beat fascism. Um, but I feel like that's really ignoring the political landscape in Bolivia, and that, um, I mean, like I said, Carlos Mays is not that different from Joe Biden, and the Moss Party is nothing like the Democrats. Like, it's actually mobilized by a mass movement of, like, the workers of the country. Well, I mean, people who would be, like, hardcore Biden bros would want to think that they are, they that they would be representing, like, the Moss Party, like the people. But, I mean, in reality, it's just not really what it is. I I think that they just, like, don't see the reflection that that's not what they're representing in america you know yeah well the two major political parties don't really work like that in america like they're more like platforms that people can run on to uh, get an audience but um it's not like they're um supported and backed up by any group of people like right right passive to it yeah it's totally yeah for it i mean it's just not the same like they want in America as it is in like there we don't have a really any presidential candidate that is represents real people's interest whereas they have actual like I mean you know Moss is actually supported by the indigenous groups of Bolivia that in that way and it, we, we just don't have something that looks like that in America 
Yeah, and uh, I think part of it kind of comes down to, like, if you have a a multi-party system or a two-party system, because in the U.S. what happens is there'll be some type of mass movement, either big or small, like the Tea Party movement, for example, was relatively not that big, but it did end up uh, becoming integrated into the Republican platform. Like, that's how the two parties, they, like, absorb things and, like, suck them in. Uh, Whereas in a more multi-party system, the Tea Party people would have just formed a new party or something, and it would be small, but it would have some power. And if they would have done that in America, then everyone would have just gotten mad at them for taking votes away from, or all the Republicans would have gotten mad for taking votes away from Republicans. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I guess that that's that's one of the ways where the U.S. political system seems impenetrable because there's almost not even room for a party like Moss to ever get any power. It would get like either. Uh, sucked into the democratic machine or it would just get like sublimated out of existence it would have to be like changed in the constitution or something and like even though the constitution was meant to be changed it it would never that i don't think that's something that would ever be able to be written down as law i don't know maybe i'm just not optimistic enough but yeah i I feel like most people would not go for that Yeah, I talked about this on the podcast before where, like, when they wrote the Constitution, they they had a very, like, liberal, and by liberal I mean, like, early liberal, um, uh, when it was still, like, a new idea to be a liberal and um, kind of, like, individualist mindset that they tried to make the Constitution purposely not allow political parties, but... that inadvertently created the system like it's not like we designed to have a two-party system yeah exactly yeah it's not written in the constitution that we have a two-party system it's just the way that it developed and there's no really way no real way to just like naturally move out of that without it just kind of falling apart somehow yeah definitely so um do you want to uh, switch over to talking about Thailand? I actually, yeah. I mean, the Bolivia story is um, more optimistic, I guess. It's a better story, but uh, I do have a lot more of juicy details and context about this one. <laughs> okay, yeah. I just love the king of Thailand so much. <laughs> yeah, so that's where I'm going to start. So, um The protests that have been going on in Thailand this year, kind of off and on, are especially bold because protesting against the king of Thailand is very illegal. And um, I'll give some background um, into the king before we talk about it. So his king title is Rama the Tenth. Uh, Vaji Ralongkorn. Uh, he became king in 2016, and his dad died. Uh, so his dad was king from 1946 to 2016. So right after World War II, to when Trump was elected, his dad was king. Yeah, that's insane. <laughs> I I can't believe that in that time, you know. I mean, that's the big change in time. And uh, 
there was a king for <laughs> that whole time. And it's just insane to think about. Yeah, and the new king is much less respected. Uh, he's the type of royalty that uh, I guess I would describe as like middle class moms like to gossip about. Like he's kind <laughs> of a tabloidy king. Um, yeah, I I love his um, cr- you know, of course the crop tops and the like giant fake back tattoos are just like so yeah funny. and like one time he had this ceremony where he had a dog i forget what the dog's name it was like fufu or something like yeah that. yeah right yeah it and he, something he made, like that and made it head of the military and had like a bit or the air force and had a big party for him I believe the dog is still technically the head of the Air Force, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, I thought the dog died. <laughs> oh, I, that could be it. I, that could be right. I'm not sure. <laughs> let, let me look it up real quick. <laughs> but yeah, and I, I mean, he's just known yeah, for... Yeah, like, Right, yeah. I knew it was something just like that. Yeah. He, uh, and, um, you know, he went since the protests have been going on he went and hid in germany and then germany was like no we we don't want you here like you have to not be here because they didn't want him you know doing royal decrees or whatever from germany yeah he actually spends most of his time in germany right. i think he has uh he owns two villas there in bavaria um i think and I also know he owes like billions of dollars to Germany in taxes. Yeah, that's not surprising. I mean, and how can a country respect a king that doesn't even live most of the time in their country? And he just, just the whole idea of it is insane to me because unlike the, you know, the British royalty that don't really do anything like he actually has like political power and kind of rules their country still so the fact that he's living somewhere else and i mean there's people in the country that actually support him yeah there there's um this story about how he uh went to divorce his ex-wife and basically said uh, yeah, the whole failure of the marriage is entirely her fault. Uh, she did everything <laughs> wrong and ruined everything. And uh, she couldn't um, defend herself because it's illegal to uh, contradict the king in a court of law. And th- that's one of the crazy... Because, I mean, I've s- heard of people online who even just criticize... I mean, criticize Thailand and get banned from Thailand like... Uh, uh, and just that that factor, I mean, criticize the king of Thailand, but just that fact, it makes these protests is um, really crazy is because, I mean, just everything they're doing is, a, you know, massive legal penalty if they get caught. Yeah, so we can definitely move on to the protest. But one other thing I wanted to add about how. Uh, the king spends most of his time in Germany. The crazy thing about that is, so the current king, he was born in Thailand, but uh, the like three kings before him were all born in Europe or in other countries, and I think a lot of them didn't spend much time in the country either. So there's a weird historical precedent of the king of Thailand not living there. And that that is bizarre, and uh, and just 
I was looking into earlier, like how you know kings be, even became a thing in Thailand, and it's it w- came from like Buddhist and uh, sorry Hindu and Buddhist traditions, and which I thought was kind of strange because. I mean, when I think of kings, I automatically think of just like, you know, Western monarchies and thinking that it may have come from some sort of like um, colonialization. But I don't know if that was even the case in Thailand. But if if it is the case, it would make sense as to why they kind of stay in Europe. Yeah. And um There's another thing about Thailand related to that where I kind of think of it as the Japan of Southeast Asia in the sense that, like, it was the only part of it that was never really colonized. Right. And it also never had any sort of revolution. Um, So, And because of that, they both have a lot of right-wing elements that... I mean, China definitely purges right-wing elements or, you know, what... um, I guess it depends your perspective, but like I think of Falun Gong as her right wing group, or like you know what I mean. Right, right, yeah. And, and I mean, I was thinking about because I, you know, how I was thinking of just how they got the tradition of kings, and I know that because the, they didn't, you know, directly have like a British, uh, you know, um, ruler in that you know territory, like colony or anything, so. But I, you know, that's what it was just what I was curious about is how that tradition be started in Thailand. Yeah. And as far as I know, the King Dynasty line goes back super far, right? Um, This, I, I know that I saw from my, what I could see is that Kings started in Thailand around like 1200, um, 1200 uh after death <laughs> was and, is it uh, all the same bloodline or is there ever a different dynasty that took over uh there's been different dynasties this dynasty has been in rule for like 900 years if i'm not mistaken oh wait so i looked it up it's um since 1782 so there were like kings before oh, okay. it but they were part right. of a different like ruling house Right, right. Um, yeah, I, I know this. I saw. I knew that this uh, dynasty has been. Um, it's been ruling for quite a while. Yeah, seventeen eighty two is extremely long. I don't even know how long the royalty of England has been the royalty. Oh yeah, probably not nearly that long. Since so, yeah, nineteen seventeen. Yeah, yeah, for for sure. I think they switched a lot more frequently then uh i mean i'm not sure about indonesian kings and stuff actually because i know they had uh kings and monarchs yeah and but well. they do not indie any- anymore um, yeah no they don't anymore I, d- I don't know how long they lasted compared to thailand yeah and another thing is like my comparison to from thailand to japan it's like there are governments that are pretty right-wing uh, in Southeast Asia, like Indonesia, um, but they also at one point had a communist government that got overthrown by, by the CIA. But there's never been anything like that. There's never been any mobilized left-wing politics in Thailand, very similar to Japan. Yeah, that is. I haven't. I haven't ever really thought of that comparison of Thailand and Japan, but it is pretty accurate in a lot of ways. 
Yeah, in Thailand was loosely allied with Japan in World War Two. Yeah, I know that, and they because they wanted a lot of their territory back, just kind of like Japan was. They Japan did, um, you know, from all those other countries in Southeast Asia. So it makes sense. It does make a lot of sense. And I mean, Thailand's interesting, and they have a lot of tourism there as well you know a lot of even like americans feel you know will go to thailand when there's not a lot of other like southeast asian countries a lot of americans will will go to frequently and uh so i mean and i i've heard uh stories of the king you know encouraging his loyalists to like take action against people you know speaking out against him so if that turns into something it could uh it could be crazy yeah, I'm I'm going to get into that. So let's move into the protests. I'm going to touch on that in, in a little bit. But uh, so the protests have been off and on all year. I, I think I said that uh, they, there's a few causes. I'll go over some of them. They started after the Future Forward Party, which was a progressive anti-military coup party. It was dissolved in February. And then so they protested a little bit and then stopped due to COVID and then partially due to the government's handling of COVID, they started protesting again in July. Um, so uh, to give like a little backdrop, after the 2014 coup, they wrote a new constitution in 2017 and had the first election in 2019. And the election was widely seen as unfair and heavily seen as heavily fixed in favor of the pro-military Palong Pracharoth party, which barely won, and it is led by the general who led the military coup. So those are some of the biggest motivations. Yeah, I mean, there would be a lot, I mean, a lot of reason why you would want to protest against a government like that. And I mean, it makes sense. And there's not a lot, I mean, with, with just the way that the law is, it's hard to really say anything because just speaking out against the monarchy will get you arrested or worse. Yeah. And there's actually another element to the story that, uh, it never really made American news much, but it was a really big deal in Southeast Asia. There was this, this thing called the One, Mal One Malaysia Fund or One MDB scandal. And it's basically like there was this sleazy Malaysian financier named Joe Lowe. And he has all these ties to Middle Eastern princes and uh, celebrities. Like he went to Kim Kardashian's wedding or something. Um, and he was involved in the shadowy finances of this Malaysian government program um, and it was basically a shell company run by Malaysia um, used for all these like crooked schemes and it implicated a lot of wealthy people in you know Malaysia Indonesia and Thailand and Singapore so uh, a lot of these protests are actually in reaction to that Oh, I, I mean, uh, with a lot of those small, you know, Southeast Asian countries that are like tax havens for large corporations, like, obviously, there's going to be some kind of collusion between them, uh, you know, and uh, if when that goes into the government, you know, uh, it will just, it, you know, it just creates these, especially in a government with a monarchy that, uh, 
that uh, has like absolute power that can't be criticized when they start colluding with governments and other governments that basically become, you know, corporatocracies where small corporations are controlling these small Southeast Asian countries that are tax havens for other corporations. Yeah, and it's funny to imagine all of these like people associated with the Thai monarchy or Thai military investing all this capital into a shady Malaysian government fund <laughs> and then this guy Joe Lowe, no joke, he like steals the money to buy presents for Kim Kardashian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just to impress the Americans. The one the one American you need to impress is Kim Kardashian. <laughs> yeah, like he got fined millions of dollars, I think, from the city of New York for fraudulently buying all of these uh, expensive-ass paintings. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, but... Um... Yeah, scamming, scamming your people for uh, gifts for Kim Kardashian. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh... Uh, to, back to the protests, though, uh, they really started heating up a lot this month or the month of October. Um, we're recording this on Halloween, but it comes out next Tuesday. Um, the government began using even more repressive tactics like censorship, arbitrary detention, uh, police violence, all things that uh, Americans should be familiar with. Yeah, I mean, that's right. Uh, I mean, everyone in America is very familiar with the protesters having violence brought upon, brought upon them by the police recently in America. But I mean, in in Thailand, there has been quite a few casualties from police and people, you know, prominent people going missing and stuff like that. So luckily, we haven't had that to quite the volume in the U.S., yet but i mean you never really know what could happen yeah and it could get worse so on october 13th uh, there had been no major protests for a month but uh, a small group protested the king's motorcade when he was in town from germany and all 21 of the protesters were detained and um not long after that the king actually went back to germany and Immediately after, he uh, sent the military out on protesters, so it could yeah. get re a lot uglier from here. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's a, and I mean, just with like, uh, you know, I mean, he told his supporters that he, he supported them, you know, doing violence upon people who spoke out against him and... I mean, Trump has done kind of the same thing. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's another one of those um, kind of funny reflections of a situation that's similar in the U.S. and going down in another country. Yeah. So, um, yeah, going off what you're saying on so that protest where all of them got arrested the day after or later that day, uh, the Thai military sent, quote, counter protesters, but they arrived in government trucks. Um, right. Uh, do you, you probably, maybe you know about this, but you know about the Brooks Brothers riot? Um, no, I, not off the top of my head. Basically, it was in 2000 uh, when the whole vote 
controversy in Florida, how it's like, oh, did Gore win? Did Bush win? Um, you've heard of it. Okay, that? right. No, yes, I have heard of this. Yes, yes. Yeah. Right, it, yeah. They, they went to, like, um, stop the ballots. Yeah, right. a bunch of Democrat or Republican operatives were posing as regular people to protesting. Um, yeah, that's exactly what this sounds like with the counter-protesters showing up in government trucks. Well, I mean, even at protests in the in America, you there's tons of videos and you know accounts of the, you know, the protesters, the MAGA protesters, like helping the police or getting water from the police or, you know, you know, basically acting as, you know, a citizen police, a citizen police force that are backed by the police. Yeah, and these these so-called counter-protesters, government people, whatever, they were collaborating with uh, loyalists and fascist groups. Um, one of the groups that was really prominent in the counter-protests that's really interesting to me because of how crappy they are, uh, they're called the Rubbish Collection Organization, and they are basically snitches they're very fascistic. Uh, they look for people who insult the king and then dox them and report them to the police. Yeah, I've heard of this. That's just, it, I mean, it's, um, you know, it's information police. It's like, you know, China does basically the same thing with their cameras and um, stuff everywhere, watching what people do and tracking people that way. It's just maybe not a uh, quite as high tech way. Yeah, the parallel I thought of um, personally is this feels a lot similar to, I guess, like Andy No or like those types of guys. Right. I mean, you're yeah. not on Twitter, so I don't know how much you're exposed to Andy No. But... No, I know who Andy No is. Yeah, no, I'm I'm pretty familiar with who he is, and yeah, I that's I mean, I definitely agree with that parallel. It's it's very accurate. Somebody who just basically like agitates people to record it to be like oh look at how insane these people are <laughs> yeah and um i i didn't mean to draw so many parallels between this and the u.s but there is another parallel where uh, a common right-wing talking point about the protests in thailand is that they're being supported by an international anti-Thailand conspiracy. Um, so that, that is like word for word, uh, just the most, every talking, right-wing talking point in the U.S. Right, yeah, they're, they're anti-Thailand, you know, they're, they're, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you, you know, they're, burning the Thai flag, I'm sure, whatever. <laughs> yes. Oh, that reminds me. Uh, there's this, like, faction of uh, far-right Japanese people who are really opposed to tyrannism, which is basically this idea that Turks, um, Turkic people like Kazakhstanis, Uzbekistanis, Azerbaijanis, but then also like Finnish people, uh, Korean people, Mongolians, they all have the same ethnic origin. Um, it's like a very weird theory. I don't really know much about it, but these, <laughs> these right-wing Japanese people think it's real and there's like a, 
an anti-Japanese conspiracy between the Turks and the Koreans. Like, like, when you look at theories in other countries, they just, like, seem way more ridiculous. Yeah, I've never thought about looking at other countries' conspiracy theories, but that sounds uh, pretty entertaining. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and... uh, So just to wrap up about the protests, so uh, for the next few days after these counter-protests, the protests were still gaining momentum. Uh, They used a lot of flash protests and flash mobs that moved from place to place. Um, And the government declared an emergency parliament session in an attempt to appease protesters but they really didn't do anything, and they didn't even pretend that hard to do anything, so no one bought it. I mean, it's just their slight attempt to appease the protesters to make so they can like stop trying to fight it, and you know, it, they think that it would be easy. I mean, the U.S. does stuff like that too. They'll try and pass something that they think will appease people for a little while, and um, you know. I'm glad that they saw right through it. I mean, they have to at least probably attempt to do something to make people think there will be some change. Yeah, like with the protests in the U.S. this summer, the George Floyd protests, there was a a lot of talk about doing something about it that never actually happened. Or like whenever there's a mass shooting and, you know, everyone's like, oh, we're going to pass these gun laws and, you know, that usually just fizzles out and nothing happens, but they talk about it for a little while. Yeah, definitely. And so just the last, as of now, the last update I could find about the Thai protests is they recently started protesting at the German embassy since the king lives in Germany, which is, I suppose it's a good strategy. And um, several protest leaders were actually released from jail and then police from another province immediately re-detained them. So there were more protests outside the jail. So uh, it seems like these protests have been kind of off and on, but I don't think they're over yet. Yeah, no, I really liked that idea of uh, protest when I read that protesting outside the German embassy because uh, Germany could do something. You know, they have some power, especially since the king does sit, spend so much time there and like, if they forced him to go live in Thailand full time, I mean, he would obviously try and find somewhere else where he could stay. But uh, I mean, like, just imagine, you know, if he had to actually deal with everything on the daily basis, living in Thailand constantly, or if there was people protesting outside of his estate or something like what he would do then. Yeah, definitely. So, um, yeah, I feel like we covered it. Uh, do you have any more thoughts on anything? Anything you want to say before we wrap up? No, that was that was pretty good. I think I, uh, yeah, I that was fun. Thank you for having me on your show. Yeah, if you ever want to come on for a full episode, then uh, you're welcome. This is going to be a ideally double length episode, so and I have another interview later on, so. Uh, Thank you for being on the first mega episode of The Society Show. Nice. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I'm really excited to be on. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) All right. Tell him to do that sleepy Joe Biden. It could have been the greatest 
You know, if you look, uh, we look at the amount of money that he has raised, hundreds of millions, $300 million one month. But I could have been the greatest of all time. I could have been the greatest political fundraiser. Thanks again to Cameron for joining the show. Uh, At this point, I'll use this opportunity to promote. I just want to say that if you're listening to this episode the day it comes out, remember, there is the first society stream going on for tonight, election night. If you listen to this episode after the stream, Uh, then I will be editing that down to the main audio components that are actually interesting and releasing that as an episode. So either way, you'll get it to some extent. Uh, And before, basically as I move forward, I'm going to go through a few news stories. Then I am going to be joined by Mike Fallick from the hashtag cult podcast that we're going to talk mostly about uh men's going men going their own way uh, a certain subset of the general uh kind of like manosphere type stuff he's going to talk a lot about how it's in its nature a cult and then i'll also have some material after that at the end of the show so uh before we get to that be sure to follow the society show on twitter at society underscore show And uh, with that, let's get into some of these news stories. I will be doing the segment, The Dystopia Corner. Ooh, Dystopia. I've done this segment before where I usually focus on news that uh, maybe signifies something of the future to come, or I on some level feel like it says something about the future so uh a lot of these are tech related but uh this first one or and a lot of them come out of california either way this one is not tech related and there's not much for me to add but they say california this is from the la times california's homeless students could fill dodger stadium five times study finds groovy smashing yay capitalism (laughs) uh so that means there were at least two hundred and sixty nine thousand kindergarten through 12th grade students in california experiencing homelessness at the end of the 2019 school year uh and like i said enough children and teens to fill dodger stadium five times and the a UCLA report said that I think it comes from the same UCLA UCLA report. They say the number was likely a gross underestimate, and I'm, I don't exactly know why it may be an es- underestimate, but I have some guesses. I imagine that a lot of kids experience. Um, different forms of home insecurity like maybe living with a grandma while a parent is homeless uh temporarily or things like that that might be borderline a but i would still consider i would consider stuff like that homelessness personally no permanent home living at grandma it could be permanent but um 
don't let me get sidetracked on <laughs> on hypotheticals I made for myself. Uh, that story kind of speaks to it for itself. Poor kids are just as bright and just as talented as white kids. This next story in the dystopia corner. This is from CNN Business. The headline is Berkshire Hathaway fined for alleged Iran sanctions violations. The thing about that, well, I'll read some more details and then I'll get my thoughts. Quote, a foreign subsidiary of Berkshire Hathaway appears to have violated U.S. sanctions on Iran. Berkshire, the conglomerate run by Warren Buffett, the investor, voluntarily disclosed the conduct and agreed to pay $4.1 million to settle. It says between late 2012 and early 2016, Iskar Turkey, which is a Berkshire subsidiary in Turkey, uh, was, quote, knowingly engaging in transactions with people subject to U.S. sanctions on Iran. And it said the Turkish subsidiary, quote, sought out business in quote, in Iran with the, quote, express purpose of building a foothold in the market when it was prohibited from doing so. (laughs) The thing is, they actually went really far out of their way to disguise this. CNN writes, to hold its dealings with Iran, Iskar Turkey allegedly accepted payments in euro-dominated denominated cash instructed employees to use private email accounts, employed, quote, false invoices, and even used a fake name for a non-existent company to mask the ultimate buyers. Um, so what I have to say about this is, so th- this sanction violation is clearly a, a capitalistic gesture. They want to be able to accumulate capital in Iran. And I guess that that uh, implicitly means that it, it's a transaction for the rich. They, they're investing millions in Iran to presumably make many more millions back. What's the impact of that? I, I guess for me, the biggest impact is the fact that we're always told that sanctions are put in place on luxury goods and things that only oligarchs uh, are able to afford, you know, like, that's always how it's presented. Like, we're not sanctioning food or, you know, medicine or anything like that. We're sanctioning luxury goods that only hurt the oligarchs. The, um... I mean, I'll be honest, though, the U.S., especially under Trump, is way more masks off about that. Like, they will uh, just be pretty open about the nature of sanctions when I don't think that used to be as common. But my point is, this shows exactly why that's not true. In fact, sanctions hurt the poor. 
if I was just some independent guy who uh, was like, oh, there is hunger in Iran. I really want to help alleviate. I don't really know how much hunger there is in Iran. But let's say I'm, I'm like, I really want to alleviate hunger for in Iran. And I'm also thinking, oh, my government tells me that the Iranian government is evil. Why wouldn't I want to help those people? It, so let's say I did that. I start distributing food to Iranians however I could find out I would probably that would probably be a, a violation of sanctions would they per- prosecute me Pro- maybe not it depends how big my operation was let's say it got big enough that they did prosecute me I would never be able to to deal with that like I I wouldn't be able to deal with that in court is just someone trying to help feed people but freaking Warren Buffett he obviously can pay it he was very open about it and was like yeah we'll pay you this big ass fine I don't freaking care because the the fine isn't actually a penalty to him when you have enough money fines aren't penalties they're just like the the government says okay we'll let you do this but we need a cut too we you know we both know what this transaction is illegal of course obviously it's illegal uh but uh you can make it and uh then we'll fine you so we get our cut it's really just a way of letting the u.s government in on capitalist transactions um because it doesn't actually hinder people from warren buffett from breaking sanctions and who do you think the sanctions benefit the most in iran Obviously, it's other oligarchs. This is presumably an oligarch-to-oligarch transaction. Warren Buffett is investing capital into Iranian capital to make it bigger. He gets some blah, blah, blah. You get the idea. You know how capital works. Uh, But, like, there's nothing really stopping him from doing this again. There's nothing stopping anyone who's rich enough from violating sanctions. And why do rich people want to violate sanctions? To, to do who knows what, like the freaking Iran Contra or stuff like that. that. That's something they would like to do. That's why they're rich. They want to make money. They want to exploit stuff. Uh, no rich person is going to be like, you know, I really, really want to violate these sanctions. What what would be my the best use of my time to violate these sanctions? Oh, what? maybe I should build the A house for every homeless person in Iran. No, no one is going to do that. <laughs> Literally no capitalist would ever do that. If they did, they would do it in our country first. <laughs> Um, I have two more stories. Both of them have to do with Google. Um, I don't have a ton to say about either, but this first one I think is funny. This is from gamesindustry.biz. Google distanced itself from Stadia creative director Alex Hutchinson. The internet giant asserts that tweets about streamers paying royalties do not reflect those of Stadia, YouTube, or Google. End quote. And (laughs) 
the reason why this is funny is this guy was getting completely roasted on Twitter. Uh, I don't really follow a lot of gaming stuff on Twitter, but I, even I was seeing a lot of roasting this guy. He wrote on Twitter's... Uh, he wrote on Twitter, quote, Streamers worried about getting their content pulled because they use music they didn't pay for should be more worried by the fact that they're streaming games they didn't pay for as well. It's all gone as soon as publishers decide to enforce it. The real truth is the streamers should be paying the developers and publishers of the game they stream. They should be buying a license like any real business and paying for the content they use. This tweet got a ton of negative attention and like I mean like I started Google distanced themselves from him. He's the creative director for All of Stadia. I do have some thoughts on his comment though. I have thought about this before and the simple truth is He's kind of right. Like, if you follow copyright law to their logical conclusion, then what he's saying makes sense. The issue is, I've wrestled with that myself, and I've come to the opposite conclusion. I just really don't think copyright law should exist. Um, honestly, like, or it should at least be loosened in the extent that I think... Uh, the RIAA or whatever it is is really too strict when it comes to music. Um, I think I think it's lame. It's sad that you can't stream a watching a movie uh, online with your friends. Like I mean, I knew, do know they have apps. Like there's one where you can like watch Netflix with friends and have a chat together. But I digress. My point is. He's came to a similar conclusion that a lot of people have. Why are you allowed to stream video games but not allowed to stream music? And that is an inconsistency that should be rectified. Alex Hutchinson's conclusion, however, is, in my opinion, the wrong conclusion. Copyright law should be be greatly weakened to be honest and I say this is someone who creates content myself I write poetry um I I mean I've made music I've done stuff like that uh and I'm I'm opposed open up a beer and you say get over here and play a video game and then um this last thing I just want to touch on it but I don't have there's probably a ton of stuff that someone could say about it I personally don't have a lot but I might as well touch on it I'm talking about quoting from NPR this is their headline Google lawsuit marks end of Washington's love affair with big tech. They basically go into how the U.S. Just Justice Department and 11 state attorney generals have filed a lawsuit against Google accusing it of being an illegal monopoly because of its stranglehold on internet search. Uh, I'm assuming there's a lot more to it, but... If it's really about the monopoly uh, on internet searches, that seems like a pretty flimsy case because 
The real problem is just Google controls way too much stuff. I I use Google for basically everything I do. I use Google Chrome, Gmail. Uh, I write my notes for this show in Google Docs. I write poetry in Google Docs. I use Google Sheets extensively. Um, not only that, but when I find news stories for this show, I use Google News Alerts. So, the problem for me isn't that they monopolize Google searches. The problem is that they monop- they control too much stuff. Like, if they were just a search engine, then who who cares? Oh my god, who the hell cares? The company warned that if the Justice Department prevails, people would pay more for, for their phones and have worse options for searching the internet. NPR doesn't really elaborate why. I guess I could kind of guess. You'd probably have worse options for searching the internet because... Uh... Well, they think Google's the best search engine. I really think that's the only reason they said that. They're like, we're the best, and you might not have the best anymore. I don't really know why your phones would cost more. Maybe there'd be more Apple phones, iPhones. Um, The real juicy from this story, the real takeaway I want to focus in on, though, is NPR wrote, quote, A tectonic shift is happening right now. USA vs. Google is the biggest manifestation of what has become known as the tech lash. A newfound skepticism of Silicon Valley's giants and growing appetite to rein them in through regulation. So, a couple things I want to say about this. One... I do think it is a little bizarre to focus on Google, but I suppose um, what the prosecutors are kind of saying is that Google criticized Microsoft during their uh, their case that was filed in 1998. That was a landmark antitrust law, and now prosecutors are saying that Google is basically doing the same tactics that Microsoft was using, and that may or may not be the case. I don't know enough about it. I guess what the real true main takeaway is, I I think this is too late. In fact, depending or, well, let me be clear. Assuming the government is doing this to stop big tech from having power that is parallel to and semi-separate from the state to they 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 don't want that to happen they don't want big tech to be a too powerful and b not overlapping with the state enough so i think There's a very specific reason they chose Google. I just don't know what it is. Um, And, I mean, I started this this little spiel by saying it's too late. I think it's too late for the U.S. government to do anything um, to actually stop the power of big tech growing. They can, of course, rein it in, but assuming this resolves itself a similar way to the Microsoft case, uh, 
Google will still be around. Microsoft is still around. I think... Think about big tech companies. They have so much power. And not only do they have... uh, Like... Nearing the power of the U.S. government. They don't have a police force or stuff like that. But in, in the ideological realm... In the tech realm, the big big tech industry is nearing on a pro, almost pseudo state, proto state status. Like they have so much power. I don't know how else to emphasize it. And I think that power will only grow. I think the future will end up looking a lot like the Peter Thiel and Curtis Yarvin's vision of the future where the concept of the nation state starts shedding away because it's no longer useful. And the reason it'll no longer be useful is private companies will continue to suck up power that conventionally was done by the state and then the state apparatuses will all be consumed into the private sphere. I really worry that when people talk about the fascist future or how the U.S. is fascist now or getting close to it or anything like that, I think that's the form it will take is private companies steadily, incrementally consuming and replacing conventional nation states and the the reason why that's such a big deal is because private companies their primary interest is accumulating capital in fact they only have short-term interests of course the u.s senate their their primary concern is accumulating capital too but they have a little, even Republicans, they have a little bit of a longer term interest or perspective than capitalists. Capitalists can only be like, suck value out now. That all Get as much value, just squeeze them. Just get all the money out of them. That's the capitalists. And, and then the, the Senate, their position is... Well, you know, you know, maybe you should squeeze it a little softer. Maybe uh, we'll we'll help them out after you wring them dry. Uh, that way, they don't riot or destroy your property. Uh, that should help out. So you get the dynamic I'm going at. And that second part, the one where it's like, oh, maybe we should do something nice. These people are really getting wrung dry by capitalists. Uh, those people will just be replaced by the uh, human resource department of the capitalist department. I think in the future, voting will basically be like human resource surveys at your job or like those surveys you take at the end of a college course. Like, rate this course 1 to 10. I think that's what voting will end up looking like in this highly privatized future. Uh, with that, that went on a little longer than I thought it would, but, uh, um, that was the dystopia corner. Ooh, I hope you're enjoying the extra long mega bastard, old bastard mega episode because, uh, 
I still have a whole other guest, and I have a few more news segments to talk about, and a, a few other things I want to touch on. So we're just getting started, and uh, before the next segment, be, for, be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter at Society underscore Show. Follow me on Twitter at Christian is Cool, Christian Iz Cool. And give us a five-star rating while you're at it. I've never asked for that in my life on this podcast, so uh, please and thank you. And with that, please welcome my second guest of the episode to the show from the Hashtag Cult Podcast, Mike Fallick. This is Christian. You're listening to The Society Show. I am joined by Mike Thalick from the Hashtag Cult Podcast. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It, it feels wonderful to be here in this audio imaginary space where we can improv anything, but we're here to talk about not that. So <laughs> Yeah, so uh, let's start. Uh, what is the premise of your show? So there's the artsy fartsy premise, and then there's the uh, the just what the content premise is. So we're investigating currently a group called MGTOW. They are a, um, a what we call a red pill cult, but they're a cult. Uh, they operate mostly on the internet, and we've coined the term hashtag cult, which is that they use. Uh, what what they how they actually what they actually use depends on the group, but essentially they use the the way that the internet, social media, and all these things are set up to be interactive in order to hide in plain sight um, from from detection as a cult. Uh, that's the that's the premise. MGTOW is a a group that believes. Um, you may have heard of these people, Red Pill. They're a part of the Manosphere. Um, MGTOW is a sectionalized part of them that. Um, indoctrinate men who are sort of depressed or suicidal or isolated or have very little experience and they kind of pull them into this group um, that identifies as being singular um, but they mostly operate on YouTube and on forums and uh, that's how the cult manifests itself through saying misogynistic things eugenic things racist things uh, but they operate as a group together by being on forums by pulling other people in by quote-unquote, red-pilling each other. Um, okay, yeah. perfect. So, yeah, uh, I would like to talk more about the, the cult element, but before that, uh, I am kind of wondering because, I mean, I think I kind of know the difference. I mostly do, but uh, um, for the audience or just in general, what is the difference between, let's say, MIG Tower, men going their own way, and any other type of sort of men's rights or... Um, mm -hmm manosphere type uh like what's the approach about so the thing is is that when we talk about non-harmful groups on the internet um we classify them as their own thing so they answer the question in a really blunt way so that people can get it and then we'll say the nice one is like what's the difference between a forum about the rolling stones and a forum about the beatles vaguely they're about the same thing but they're not quite the same, right? And that's the distinction that I really want to encourage people to make is don't take a Wikipedia knowledge for it because 
one of the ways they hide in plain sight is the manosphere thrives off of you grouping them all together because they get the protection of you thinking they might be anything from neo-Nazis to just, you know, any violent group that, that just hates women all the way down to somebody who just doesn't understand, you know, I don't like the word, but gender politics, as it were, you know, that's, that's their way of hiding by using the word manosphere. It allows you to think, well, this is just a general group of things on the internet. They very much have a lot of infighting. Uh, once you get more into the extreme beliefs, there is a very large distinction of creating boogeymen out of not only liberals and, and um, what else do they use? Democrats and leftists and social justice warriors, not, not the actual version of that. Those are their coded words to make you scared of the internet. But they also will say, oh, you know, being a MGTOW, uh, I'm smarter because I'm not an incel. And oh, being a MGTOW, I'm, at least we're not pickup artists. That stuff's stupid. You know, they use that same knowledge within each other to make these distinctions of we are not this group, we are not that group. Um, so the difference between anyone else in the manosphere is MGTOWs strongly believe in a few things. One is not marrying, um, and the other is um, no sex, no cohabitation with women, uh, definitely. And a focus on self-development uh, is probably how they would say it. I would say it as uh, kind of avoiding their issues. Um, and they're also, uh, it also varies between them, what they believe it is. But as you get more indoctrinated, you get more into the idea that we don't need women. They believe that women are genetically set up to um, take men's money away. There's a lot of focus on money elements um, to their whole thing. They, they believe they're going to get uh, robbed. And that's how you, you, you build on the fear. And this is how you groom someone. You find a fear, right? And then you build on that. So it's not, they're not a cult because of these weird beliefs, which I'm sure I hope all of your audience hears that is crazy, but they're a cult because someone is afraid of situations with women, doesn't have experience with women. And then someone finds a way to build on that fear and, 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 and indoctrinate them into the group and, and heighten that fear by confirming uh, stats that aren't, aren't real. Um, so uh, this might be a little reductive, but uh, tell me what you think about this. It seems like a lot of divisions uh, within these sort of like uh, misogynist groups, anti-women groups, is that they... Uh, they inform their flavor, their type is based largely around whether or not they want to have sex with women or ha the, the context in which they have sex with women. Like, incels would like to have sex, but they kind of hate women too much and are too socially isolated to do that. Whereas men going their own way uh, are actively abstinent uh would you say that's kind of the main matrix that they have differentiate differentiation on hmm. so this is where my work comes in as being somewhat i'll toot our own horn here as being somewhat revolutionary i don't think any of that's real i think none of that's real in the same way that Cults don't distinguish themselves on whether or not they believe Jesus lives on a comet th flying through space or whether or not Jesus lives in, um, you know, a dimension 
inside of a, a rock. Um, they distinguish themselves based on how they can groom people. Cults evolve is the one thing that I'm is, is the one thing I'm trying to to really push in this. The hashtag cult is a new evolution of the cult to use the internet to use hashtags is essentially it. You can say, oh, I'm into this forum and group. I'm not in a cult. And we all go, oh, it's just an internet forum when, it, when it's not that. So it is, it is reductivist. I'll say that's one of the things that distinguishes them. But there are many. And there's lots of infighting in, in between them. And so to say the context in which they want to have sex, sure. But you got to dig deeper than that. You got to dig to the idea that all of these groups are finding men who for some reason or another are uncomfortable with sex. And via manipulators, via their level of indoctrination, whether they're just looking for friends and they're kind of lonely and they go onto these forums casually, all the way up to people who cannot go a week. They, they feel pressured to not go a week without watching their favorite misogynistic YouTube creator. So the idea that they're actually, they never, we just did an episode about asexuality because we've talked to some ex-members who, and current members who are having to confront the idea of whether they're asexual or not. And we talked to an ex-member who said, yeah, yeah, I think I do lie on that end of the spectrum. And I think it was easier for them to manipulate me. To say that that's the thrust of their ideology is the thing we're trying to change. The thrust of their ideology is uh, we find men who are scared because we like having power over people and we've created a cult. It works like every other cult. Um, they don't talk a lot about sex. They don't. They identify as it when they research it and they get into these things, they don't talk that much about sex. So to say that they're, which not a lot of people do. So to say that they're, you know, you know, to say that they're even thinking about their context with sex, they're wanting to be safe. In the case of MGTOW, there's a lot of things about uh, women and marriage causing suicide. Um, that's, that's one of the things going on currently, um, which is the scariest of the things that I say, but it's also like whatever makes them feel use this scapegoating outlet well, that's what they'll attach to. They don't go back and go, hmm, well, let me imagine a scenario where I'm with a woman. And we're saying woman because they are portraying themselves to be heterosexual men. Um, and there's a large, you know, Christian um, background in, in a lot of these groups as well. A lot are raised, many of the subjects uh, were raised in a Christian home, not all, uh, a very Christian home to some of them. But uh, it's all about the context of their life that makes them feel safe in this relationship, which is different for every cult member. They're not thinking, hmm, how do I, how do I have sex with a woman and feel comfortable? Hmm, how do I go into a relationship and not feel, oh, or this, you know, they're not, they're not doing that. It's a way to identify and segregate, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm thinking kind of like uh, to take another type of uh, kind of right-wing thinking uh, in terms of race. Like, there are white supremacists and white nationalists who want a fully white nation, and then there's also some who are okay with minorities as long as they don't have a dominant position in society, and it seems kind of like for um, MGTOW or things like that uh they're all operating from the same base misogyny and they all see that as a problem to solve but they uh, all have different uh visions of how to solve that yeah and 
it's again, I, I warn people about grouping them with any ideology because it does denigrate it. To say that they're right wing, maybe because they know you'll yell at them about right wing stuff. They want attention. They don't feel heard in the world. That's that's one of the main operating things of how they indoctrinate people. They find lonely people and indoctrinate them. Um, that spectrum you're talking about, and I haven't investigated any of these white supremacist groups. Um, I can only talk about what I've learned from cult experts who talk about cults and what I've learned from my group. Like, to, to even you to say Republican, like if there's a MGTOW listening right now, he's or like right wing, I guess was the word you used. He's like, oh, see, that's the whole issue is that I'm and, and if you were to have said it's left wing thinking, they would have gone the other way, too. They're not they're not in their. I mean, when someone's in a cult, they're not fully thinking. If we go around and we pretend that people that are being indoctrinated into a cult and being manipulated by their fear are thinking, you you know, then you're always going to have political fights with them. And they want that. They want attention. They, they, They do like that. They, when we post videos, they go crazy. We had a video with a hundred views and 300 comments was the, 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 the most it got because they're trying to suppress this idea that something is wrong with their way of scapegoating. And we've talked to, to cult experts and ex-cult people and people dealing in the world of cult, and it's it's classic cult behavior. But because it's in the YouTube comments, because we're so way too tolerant of YouTube comments, and we're doing we're having unmoderated forums, we just go, oh, that's how people act. Um, so to say that they're like related to any philosophy or any plan as to how to confront it. No one in any cult is related to any philosophy or plan or how to fix anything. Um, that doesn't mean they're not smart outside of those scenarios. The cult members are often very smart and uh, cult leaders are often very smart and they can, I mean, we, we've seen it. They build up this wall so quickly. We have one interview where I challenge them on something like this, you know, and this has taken a while. I don't want you to feel like I'm like, oh, you don't get it. It's taken me a while to get over it because you hear these things and you're like, oof, I really want to challenge you on that. And I'll give you an example of how they're smart is I had one uh, interview with a member and he was he was talking about being stoic or, something, you know. Uh, oh, like, uh, you know, it's a part, it's, it's, it, he was talking about being stoic vaguely, you know, oh, like I can push my emotions. I don't want to have emotions for thing. And so I start to talk about stoic philosophy and I go, oh, so you're sort of talking about being a stoic and he goes, and he goes, yeah, 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 exactly. I'm a stoic. And he says those things. And I go, well, here's the problem is that you're not, here's what I'd like to challenge you about being a stoic in what you're saying. And he goes, well, I never said I was a stoic. And he said that three seconds ago, <laughs> like, in as much time as you started this question until now, he had flipped already. He had found a way to say, I never said I was a stoic, hoping I'll forget about it. They're able to flip and to do these things to get you to yell at them, to agree with them, to make their side seem better. They're in a really bad place mentally. So I, I caution people to say, I've heard this a lot, that group it with right wing. I don't see anything right wing about what they're saying other than that they, you know, Okay, like, for example, classically, the right has a, as a journalist, I don't talk about politics, but I'll just give you an example. The right has classically, in extreme cases, uh, prevented, you know, let's say abortion or, or, or um, uh, whatchamacallit, birth control, right? Yeah. Their views on birth control are way different. Their views on birth control in the extreme sense is like, well, we should find a way to not have women, we don't want women. 
we want to have artificial wounds. That's something we've heard out of them. So <laughs> that's not any political party. So, so you've got to realize they are in a world of, and men's rights, I haven't investigated, they're obviously a big part of it, but they all have different ways of, one of the things we say is that through SEO, you, you groom yourself on the internet if you let these groups exist. You Google your thoughts and things that you want to feel and a forum will come up. We'll agree with you. Um, so I caution everyone from thinking that they're a political movement. I would, I would really caution that. They're, they're a cult. They're as much a political movement as, you know, Jonestown was. Which, Jonestown is more of a political movement because they actually formed a government, didn't they? And they had a political ideology. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, so let me, um, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the idea of a cult, or because I will say, uh, based on my experience, I feel like my understanding is a little different from yours. So, like, um, when I most learned about cults was actually when I, I studied abroad in South Korea and I learned about, I took a class on Korean religions and, um, a lot of it was about, uh, cultic religions, you know, which in the context of religious studies, a cult is like a highly localized religious set of religious belief that's really only uh, applicable to like a, a regional group and once it starts expanding it becomes kind of like asynchronous or idiosyncratic um so and and then of course you know we have the cults that were a big deal in the 60s and what have you that are a similar idea you know they're localized religions um and so how would you describe um, movements like MGTOW or whatever, when you describe them as a cult, like what elements of a cult are you specifically gesturing towards? This is a great, great question. And first I want to say, before we get into asynchronous religious beliefs, <laughs> I want to say one of my things is like, I'm trying to make this interesting for the layman, which is me. I'm not a cult expert. I'm a journalist, right? And so I'm the same as you is all my cult information comes from whenever someone mentions it, um, whenever I learn about these things, um, and through researching it. So generally, when we talk about cults in the modern day, we're talking about, we have a, we made a funny video explaining what modern cult experts call a cult. Religious belief does not factor into it. For the most part in modern day, cult is defined by some big culty programmers who did some great work. There's too many to, to mention. You can go on Ixa. We interviewed Rick Ross, who had dealings with Waco. Um, and our definition on our website is um, un, unbridled control using coercive tactics of another person. And what, what modern cult stuff, which has really only come up in since the, the, the 60s and 70s in doing this stuff, is they've learned these experts, not me, <laughs> careful to not say we, I've learned it recently. They've learned that the belief has almost nothing to do with it. It has to do with how you can groom someone and how you can create an abusive relationship through an organization. Now, in the 60s and 70s, I like to point this out, hippies, before they were called hippies, were called Jesus freaks. Free love and religion was really being pushed 
And so that was the idea that they tapped into, that abusive people, because once you strip away the Christianity, cults in the, the 60s and 70s were, hey, let's find down and out people or regular people and tell them their life could be better and kind of manipulate them into joining and doing these things and love bombing them and uh, getting them to feel better or to feel obligated to me, the cult leader, or to us, the cult group, or to the ideology, um, in the same way that an abuser gets a spouse into their home, keeps them there by loving them a lot more than the abuse, but keeping them there out of fear by using the abuse. So these experts, there's many of them, stripped away the element of the actual beliefs, which don't work, by the way. You can't manipulate someone by just putting out a belief. You need this, this other element. And so modern cult study is about how cults are either groups or an individual who is an expert at being an abuser and lives off of the narcissism. Each member is living off of the narcissism of superiority. That's what cult experts are talking about, is this ability to, to do that. And your question was my question too, was can this... You know, I, I started this project because a friend of mine got sucked up into this and I said I would like to interview on camera and sort of do an intervention. And he was brainwashed. And I came to realize there's many secular cults. There's many ways of getting into this stuff. And he couldn't accept the reality of what was going on in his life. And that his beliefs were not odd, but that they were controlling him. They, they, they didn't allow him to be my friend or anyone's friend anymore. Um, that's what modern cult study is about. Take any cult, in the end, the, the beliefs have very little to do with what is keeping people afraid and still there. Um, that, that's, that's, that's coming from other cult experts and their studies. And the main thrust of that is how do we get someone to deprogram? How do we get someone to get therapy? How do we get someone to move on with their life? And that's where that definition is coming from how do we treat these people how do we get them help yeah and that actually seems um maybe a lot more difficult than it has in the past in the sense that from what you're describing it really seems like um the sort of so you know conventionally maybe a cult the ideological engine would be some leader who distills ideology into followers and then they self-reinforce because they all they all do what the cult leader says or what have you but uh this seems especially insidious because it takes out the the linchpin the one kind of disseminating the ideology and replaces it with a network of people who are all self-enforcing each other uh does that sound right to you yeah and what i've learned is that it's never just the leader the leader of course takes credit but, and, and of course, in a lot of leader cults, the leader has the most ability to abuse and is usually the worst of the pack, but they can't do it by themselves. You do have this thing called hot seating, where if you have a bad attitude, if you go against the morals, everybody jumps in, everybody puts you down and makes you, how could you do that to us? Like we're trying to do this thing together and you're not, you're not being a team player. Like how dare you go scrub toilets. You just don't get it. Just go, go, go scrub toilets. And then when you come back, 
you know, it's like, I, I, I'm so happy you got over not believing in what we believe. Uh, you know, I'm so, I'm so happy you were, you, you, you know, do you see that that was so destructive and, and their options are to disagree and go, no, I don't think I did anything wrong. And then they'll be treated badly again or to agree and get the love and companionship and friendship. That's the reason they joined it because there's no reason to be in the cult, right? Unless it gives you some comfort. And so I really reckon you can even, you know, we can even give you the audio. Uh, you can take out snippets if you want, like of our sketch that we did explaining a cult. We did the stop motion sketch. Like it, 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 it's always self-enforced and enforced through, through uh, small other people instead of the leaders. It's just now groups know things like, Hey, if we call ourselves incel, they've adapted to, if we call ourselves incel, you'll think we're weird. If we have a single leader, you'll think we're a cult. You know, they're resistant to those things. They, yeah. they are. We found subjects that we interviewed on Rick Ross's website. They knew about Rick Ross, the world's probably most famous cult expert. They knew about him. They knew were on his forums, in his website, asking questions about other groups that they were a part of. Oh, so and, when you said Rick Ross earlier, you did not mean the rapper. I meant the drug dealer. No, I meant, <laughs> <laughs> I meant no, I did not mean the, the rapper who did try to buy Rick Ross's website. And he has a good story about that. <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, no, I meant uh, Rick Ross, the, the, the cult expert uh, who runs the um, Cult Education Institute. Um, and these guys were on their website and knew about having leaders. And there are, um, he has another term for, for big group educational groups. Uh, it's an adaptation. It's an adaptation. Rick Ross maintains you need a leader to be in a cult. Um, from what I've seen, my only contention with that as a journalist is they operate exactly the same way. You would treat them with therapy exactly the same way. The group operates the same way, except there's, you just need someone to claim they're a leader and then they're a cult, um, which he agreed with. So it's something that's discussed, but, uh, our four other, our six other, our five other, sorry, cult experts agree that this is a cult. And their only contention is that somebody might say they need a single leader, which they have leaders. They have YouTube people and things like that. Yeah. Um, if you want, we can wrap up soon, but I do have one, one other thing I wanted to uh, add insight into. Um, uh, and this is more from what I normally talk about on this show, but, uh, so bear with me, but, um, there's a, uh, a theorist named Althusser, a French theorist. And, his idea was that all of society is predicated on like both rep a repressive idea or repressive engine and an ideological engine. So like say in ancient history, someone enslaves people to work on their farms. Like part of the repressive, uh, the repressive engine is actually taking the slave and holding them captive. And the ideological engine is which what compels them to stay to begin with. And it feels to me that uh, what what really drives uh, cult membership or um, uh, interest in cultic groups is a, a search for a, an, a, a specific ideology that will reinforce itself. So I guess the question is, um, with the context I gave, do you feel like people 
are always just kind of like wrapped up into cults unwittingly or do you find it because they're specifically looking for uh, an ideology that will make them feel secure yeah i mean we're we're gonna do an ama with some of the cult experts i've talked to and so i'll definitely send you that link to ask them what they would think um from my outset the thing that i can say as a storyteller uh is every single cult is different every single and the pathology that these people are finding is a way to treat psychology and the way we group them is a way to find ways to help people but every cult is different and every cult member's journey is different in and it's different out and you don't know is someone looking for something is someone doing really well in life? Do they feel empty? I think you need to talk to some of the therapists. Well, I'll float, I'll throw, float this by them to see what they think to get how they view and what their patients have said or cult, ex-cult members that we have to see what they feel about it because that's, that's their story. But I'll tell you my one brush with a cult was I wasn't expecting it at all. I was in a yoga, we did an episode called um, My Brush with a Yoga Cult and I was in a yoga group and they just got otter and otter and i was not indoctrinated but they had some cool tricks with the human body that i hadn't seen anywhere else while studying martial arts and i was just going to the classes and as the indoctrination started to come out and as the sort of odd philosophy started to come out that's when i noticed it but effectively until then i was interested in their secrets i was interested in what they were teaching but i didn't know i was getting closer and closer to a cult now, there could be someone sitting right next to me in that class who was like, I need all the spiritual stuff. I know about all the spiritual stuff. I want to go into that more. I want to go into their weird philosophies. I don't care that I can't bend as well as the you know 22-year-old that was me sitting next to them. So you have to – the thing I'd encourage everyone is don't think you, you know cults. You need to know every single cult member, every single cult because you, you're letting them win. If you don't see them as individuals, you're letting the cult leader win and even the group win. If you, if you call them this group, then they win, then they win, then they are a group. They are recognized as opposed to this is an abuse victim, uh, which is what it is. Yeah. And uh, one one last anecdote. Uh, thank you so much for being on. I actually um, did you ever hear about the Rajneeshis in Oregon? Yeah. That cult. Yeah, this is just a little anecdote. But when I was in middle school, I actually went to summer camp at the Rajneeshi's compound. They converted it into a summer camp after they left. So that's my nearest brush <laughs> with a cult. Oh my gosh. That's a sketch. <laughs> that's, the, that's a sketch in itself the cult compound <laughs> turned into something else oh man yeah maybe you have to write that that's they, pretty that's pretty good they tell us a story about how like oh we weren't gonna buy it because it's evil but then a fire burned down all of the buildings or whatever i don't know but uh yeah that was pretty funny oh man if you're on if you're on twitter i'm gonna tag you and share that like asap because that's like the best fact i've ever heard and yeah. I, I think the people i've talked to will like that the camp is still there i think it's called washington family ranch when i went there it was called wild horse canyon but uh yeah you could you could look into it it's a fun camp but uh uh mike thank you for being on the show anything you want to plug before uh we, we disconnect hashtag cult.org 
just go to hashtagcult.org. That's uh, that's everything. That is the sketches. That is the videos. Send it to people. There, you know, we have we also own the URL migtowersacult.com. If you want to encourage people not, it's, it goes to the same place. But uh, if you want to try and encourage people to not be in this group, uh, that's that's the one we're using uh, to to really kind of get this thing out in the open as a cult. Great, thank you. And um, both you and the audience can follow me on Twitter at Christian is cool. Christian I Z cool is spelled I Z. Thanks again for being on the show, Mike. Of course, this was great. Hey, this is boy, so I was about to tell them. They got this game, right? Oh, no, this shit called Braid. Oh, no, fuck. <laughs> hey, what's this shit? It's about this little guy in a, in a suit, and he, he look like Mario in the future. And he just walk around jumping shit, but you, what's the funny part about it? You can do this right here, watch this. You? <laughs> <laughs> what do you do? How you do that? How you nah, do that? Nah, if you didn't catch They're they're not seeing the most important thing. So this has been a great episode so far. Uh, Thanks to Cameron and thanks to Mike for joining me. I've... uh, said most of what I wanted to say for the episode, but I have not done my Eyes on Africa segment, and I have not done my Europe segment yet, so let's do that to wrap up. Just some news, a little commentary to wrap up, and uh, that will be the end of my first mega episode. Africa News. Your eyes on Africa. Bringing you the latest from across the continent. This first story... From the Washington Post headline, Ethiopia accuses Trump of incitement of war over remarks that Egypt will blow up disputed dam. So if you don't know anything about the Ethiopia dam, you can go back to my uh, Africa episode that I think was like episode 18, somewhere in the teens like that. Uh, I talked a lot about it. Basically, Ethiopia is making this dam on the Nile River that's really pissing off Egypt. Egypt claims it'll harm farming. Um, but a lot is really banking on Ethiopia. Er, for Ethiopia, a lot to them is banking on building the dam. It's seen as a big national project to revitalize their, their nation and economy. There's a lot of weight put into this dam. Damn, son. So, uh, let me read a little more into this uh, story. It says, Ethiopia accused Trump on Saturday of, quote, incitement of war between Addis Ababa and Cairo a day after Trump said Egypt will blow up a contentious Ethiopian dam. Here's the exact quote from Trump. He said, Egypt will end up blowing up the dam. And I said it, and I said it loud and clear, they'll blow up the dam, and they have to do something. Uh, so the thing is, the first part, they have to, they will end up blowing the, up the dam. You can see that as a criticism. You are fake news. But then he's like, they have to blow it up. Um, <laughs> uh, and the main reason I wanted to highlight this story is because... 
there's been this new thing from conservatives. It's not exactly new, but it's been revitalized recently. I've seen a lot of conservatives being like, denounce Muslim Brotherhood. Denounce Muslim Brotherhood. I've talked a lot on this podcast about uh, the Muslim Brotherhood. I did on the Africa episode that I mentioned earlier. I am absolutely opposed to the Muslim Brotherhood. But the thing that is so hypocritical about this is, like I said, back on that Africa episode, I featured an op-ed written by a Muslim Brotherhood supporter who criticized the leader of Egypt, El-Sisi, and he said El-Sisi's a coward, basically, for not going to war against Ethiopia. So why are conservatives so into uh, wanting to make Muslim Brotherhood into a terrorist organization when Trump is literally arguing for the Muslim Brotherhood uh, policy line? It's crazy. You're a nut. You're crazy in the coconut. And I also just want to, I really only have one other story from Africa, but uh, two elements to it. I think I should clean up my mess a little bit. If you if you listen to my interview with Sergi a couple episodes back, I said that the protests in Nigeria against the government agency called SARS had been largely successful and the government was actually making concessions to them. Now, there were some concessions, but as you heard in my interview with Cameron, a lot of concessions uh, aren't actually anything. They're, they're just pandering. Maybe that was the case in Nigeria, but the protests continued, and I'm sure they pro- continued protesting for completely justified reasons. And the police opened fire on protesters. So the, the what reason I'm cleaning up my mess is I said these protests were largely successful, but... I think in some ways they might be, but in other ways it is absolutely unacceptable that police would be firing on a protester. And the other element that I wanted to comment on this is classic colonial gesture. The UK government admits it it trained and supplied equipment to Nigeria's brutal police unit, SARS. The reason why this is interesting is we we always get this portrayal of Africa as being dominated by these warlords. These, like, brutal, oppressive warlords. But then you always learn that They either are explicitly borrowing colonial tactics used against them, or they are in some ways enabled by colonialists. That's not to say there has never been a completely independent warlord in Africa who's um, not supported by any colonial power, but it does show that a lot of violence in Africa, even indirectly, has ties back to colonial use of force. This is clearly an example where the UK exported repressive government tactics to a a African country. Rule, 
And I realize that's not a lot for Eyes on Africa, but uh, again, we're at the end of the show. I'm just going over a few news stories to help help wind down. So that was the, the Eyes on Africa segment, and now it's time for our Europe segment. Uh, there is an interesting story about, uh, dozens of artifacts were apparently vandalized at Berlin's museums. Uh, this is from NPR. They wrote, Statues and ancient Egyptian sarcophagi are among about 70 objects that have been damaged with an oily substance at several of Berlin's major museums. Police, who believe vandalism to be the cause, are unsure of the motive, but German media is speculating a link to a conspiracy theory propagated by COVID deniers. Christina Hawk, the deputy director general of the Berlin State Museums, told reporters that the incident amounts to the greatest damage to the museum's artifacts since World War II. And the interesting thing, the reason why this is being linked to COVID deniers is, um, so later on, NPR writes about how a conspiracy theorist has gathered a large following of COVID deniers named Attila Hildman has claimed a number of times on his Telegram channel that the Pergamon Museum is the center of a, quote, global Satanism scene, which his followers allege Chancellor Angela Merkel has been using for human sacrifices, noting that she lives opposite the museum. So if this doesn't just scream the most QAnon but imported into Germany narrative possible, it's like freaking Mad Libs. It's, it's just QAnon with different locations changed. False flag operations, if you go through history, happen all the time before these wars. And I don't really have much to say about that, but I accept I've been keeping my eye on German politics for a few reasons. One, interested in Germany. I probably speak better German than any other foreign language. Ich die Deutsche. But having said that, I'm actually terrible at speaking German because I, I don't know any other languages. But also, it it's... V- particularly scary the idea of the German far-right adapting far-right conspiracy theories from the U.S. and readapting them to Germany. That's just a little scary considering historical precedent. Speaking of France and Germany, um... Well, I wasn't speaking of France, but speaking of Germany and also France, uh, they both have done a second lockdown as the second coronavirus wave grows. Uh, This is pretty crazy because I will tell you, if there's one thing I could point to and say, this is how the U.S. government is different from uh, European governments, this would be it. You can say all you want about Joe Biden. He probably would have handled the coronavirus better than Trump. 
I'm, I feel pretty confident in saying that. I think it still would have been bad, but I think Biden would have handled it a lot better than Trump. But having said that, there's absolutely no way in hell Biden would ever lock down again. Uh, and it's not even like it's a left-right thing. It's just a Europe-American thing because Merkel and Macron are both centrist. I mean, maybe shutting down is a centrist thing, but I don't think so because there's a lot of pro-business centrists who absolutely do not want to shut down. I don't have anything more to say about this, honestly. I mean, it's it's another shutdown, so it goes. But uh, except to just really highlight uh, the difference between the U.S. <laughs> we are never shutting down again, even if every freaking person dies of COVID. My bum is on the cheese! Bum is on the cheese! If I get lucky, I'll get a disease! This next story, it's from the New York Times. It's kind of a peculiar story. Um, the EU tells Cyprus and Malta to abandon golden passports. The two countries have raised billions of euros by selling thousands of coveted travel documents, even in some cases granting citizenship to foreigners fleeing arrest warrants. So... <laughs> This whole time, Cyprus and Malta has basically been making a government industry out of selling really expensive passports to foreign fugitives. Um, it's kind of shocking that it's still going on, but I imagine that uh, the, the EU is just now saying something about it because it's affecting them more than it used to be, and they're like, okay... Say, okay, Malta, we've had enough. Uh, quit playing around and give us our freaking prisoners back. Stop! You violated the law. And for our very last story of the mega episode, Poles join nationwide strike in a revolt over abortion ruling. This is from AP News. Let me pull this story up. People across Poland stayed off their jobs and huge crowds poured into the streets for a seventh straight day of protest Wednesday, enraged over a top court ruling that bans abortions, abortions in cases of fetal abnormalities. So this begs a question, what... How what was abortion rights like in Poland before then? Cause that's kind of a weird one, and it makes you think that it was that it was already very restrictive. So I'm looking it up right now, and it says that it's legal only in cases where of rape or incest, the woman's life is at risk, or if the fetus is irreparably, irreparably damaged. If the so it used to be if the fetus had abnormalities now it's just the fetus needs to be irreparably damaged I don't really know the legal difference but this really does seem like uh I mean the fact that there's already so few abortions legal there to begin with and then even less I mean Shout out to all the Poles out there. I'm going to leave the episode at that. Shout out to all the people in Poland protesting right now. And also, 
Shout out to everyone in the United States protesting, everyone in Nigeria, and everyone in Thailand. Shout out to everyone protesting, oh, shout out to Chile. Shout out to everyone protesting uh, in the world today. And uh, make sure you you give it to the old bastards. I got I had to tie in the episode theme at the end. I didn't follow up on it much, but uh, this has been the mega episode about old bastards. Thank you for listening to the Society Show. As I mentioned early in the sh- earlier in the show, I will be doing a Society stream. So if you listen to this episode the day it comes out, tune into my election night stream. If you did not tune into the election night stream, I will be taking the highlights and releasing it as next week's episode. Maybe add some original content if I if it's too visually dependent, but. Uh, that should be f- really fun. Follow the show on Twitter at society underscore show. Write into the email society show podcast at gmail.com with any feedback. And follow me personally on Twitter at Christian is cool. Christian is Christian IZ cool is is spelled IZ. And with that, this has been the society show. Till next time, take care of yourself and each other. On the next Arrested Development. You've memorized a bunch of talking points. Yes, indeed, boo. Yes, indeed, hiss. The word around the office is not you're a communist. Is it true, sir, that um, you have what's been described as an egg-shaped penis? I'm not here doing anything but opening the blinds to wake people up. You don't like the light, do you? <laughs>